We will again today be in Revelation chapter 9. Last week we studied verses 1 through 12. So today we will be discussing verses 13 through 21. So we'll finish out the chapter. But as we often do, uh, let's go back and, and read the entire chapter before jumping on into our verses for this morning. So Revelation chapter 9 and starting in verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek it, he has the name Apollyon. One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Now beginning our verses for today, verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. Okay, now let me just say here that we are seeing a series of events taking place here. As I mentioned last week, we really don't know the time frame in which these events are taking place. All we really know is the, is the fact that these things will happen. So is there weeks, is there months, or maybe a year or two between these events as they unfold? Again, we don't really have any inkling of the time frame between these events that we're seeing here. But that being said, when the sixth angel sounds here, the Apostle John says that he heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So we've talked in the past about this golden, golden altar being there, but what are the four horns mentioned here? Well, let's dig a little deeper into this. Let's turn, mark this page, and let's turn to the Old Testament book of Exodus. The second book in your Bible, Exodus chapter 30. Exodus 
Exodus chapter 30. And just as it set the scene for you here, God has instructed Moses uh, to build a tabernacle. And the Lord God give, gives Moses some very detailed instructions as to every little detail of this tabernacle. If you want to read all about it, you can go back and start reading around chapter 25 of Exodus and you can get an understanding of all the intricate details of this tabernacle. But here in chapter 30 is where we will see God give Moses instructions on a certain altar that was to be in the tabernacle. And this altar is the altar of incense. And starting in verse 1 here, Exodus chapter 30, verse 1, you shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around and its horns with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. So we're getting a description here of the plans or the blueprints, if you will, of this golden altar of incense that God has instructed for Moses to put in the tabernacle. It's a square altar and it has a horn on each corner. So these are horn-like projections sticking out of each corner of this altar, okay? Now, we are reading here in chapter 30 about an altar, right, on which Aaron was then to go and burn incense upon this altar. And one can't help here but to compare this altar that God instructed to be in the tabernacle with the golden altar that the apostle John described to us as being before God in heaven. Do you remember that? A couple weeks back, we studied in Revelation chapter 8, where it said that when the Lord Jesus opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And John said that he saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And he said, then another angel having a golden censer came and he stood at this altar. Again, this is what John is describing to us in heaven. Okay, we studied this in Revelation chapter eight. He says of this angel, he said he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And if you remember, when we started Revelation, I told you that the original recipients of this letter, they would understand the symbolism that this letter contained because they understood the scriptures that they had in their day. The believers in the seven churches that received the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, they had a knowledge of the book of Exodus here. So as they read what John wrote to them in Revelation, they understood that the altar before the throne of God was symbolic of this golden altar of incense that was here in Exodus. Really, the altar of incense in Exodus was symbolic of what's in heaven, right? And they knew that the incense represented the prayers of the saints as well. 
The altar here in Exodus chapter 30 was, again, it was a foreshadow or a representation of the altar that is in heaven. And the horns of this altar, these decorative projections on each corner are just a part of the construction of the altar. Every altar built had these horns. But these horns do have some significant meaning to them. And I'll try to explain that to you here this morning. Turn in your Bibles now to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. Now what is happening here is that Solomon is soon to be appointed king. King David is very old, very sick, and near to death. And Solomon is the one who is going to take David's place. But David had another son named Adonijah. And if you look down with me here at verse 5, you'll see that it says, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. So Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, makes a declaration here, appointing himself as the king. But if you look down at verse 28, it says, Then King David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So I certainly will do this day. So David assures his wife Bathsheba that her son Solomon will indeed be the king. And David follows through with his promise, and Solomon does become king. And what happens with Adonijah? Well, if you look down at verse 39, it says, uh, 49, I'm sorry, verse 49. So all the guests who were with Adonijah were afraid and arose, and each one went his way. So this is kind of interesting here because Adonijah made that bold statement. He pronounced himself as king, and it didn't work out for him, and his friends took off. And they abandoned him, okay? So he's left all alone here in verse 50 says, now Adonijah was afraid after, or excuse me, was afraid of Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. So you probably wondered where I was going with this story. You thought I was going on a rabbit trail here, right? But here we are back on the topic of the horns of the altar. And here Adonijah is fearing the judgment that may come from Solomon, the real king. And Adonijah runs and he grabs the horns of the altar. So you're getting a picture here, right? Verse 51. And it was told Solomon saying, Indeed, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For look, he has taken hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. So what is that what is Adonijah doing here by grabbing onto the horns of the altar? What he's doing is seeking mercy. He's seeking his salvation. He's seeking for his life 
could be spared. Now, we're not going to look at them this morning, but there are a couple other examples of this same thing, what's taking place here in Old Testament scriptures, and I encourage you to look them up and study them. But I just wanted you to see that the horns of the altar do have some significant meaning to them. They were a place where people could go and hold on to and plead for their life and plead for mercy when they were being accused or in some type of trouble, right? And Solomon goes on here to give mercy to Adonijah here, and he allows him to live. And as we flip back now to Revelation chapter 9 to tie this all together, John hears this voice from the horns of the altar And verse 14 of Revelation 9 tells us here what that voice says. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill kill a third of mankind. So again, we know that at this point in time, judgment is coming upon the earth. That's what we've been studying and seeing. And here in this instance, judgment is being poured out from the altar and the horns of the altar are saying, there'll be no mercy this time. There is no mercy. There's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing to grab onto. This is judgment time. A third of all of mankind on the earth during this time will be and the horns of the altar themselves are proclaiming there's no mercy. There's nothing to hold on to now, right? Again, the golden altar of incense represented the prayers of the saints, but the saints have all gone on into heaven with the exception of those 144,000 Jews that were still on the earth with the mark, with the seal of God on their foreheads. And the altar of incense again is now crying out judgment. Mercy has ceased. Though those horns at one time always represented a place of mercy, they now pronounce judgment in this vision that John has. Now we also see in verses 14 and 15 here that these four angels were already prepared for the day and the hour, for this day and this hour. They had been bound up, but they were prepared. It says there that they were bound at the great river Euphrates and they will at that point in time go out to kill. So these indeed are angels of evil. Why is is their location here specified as the river of Euphrates? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but but I do know very clearly what their purpose will be. And that is again to kill a third of mankind. You see, as these evil angels are presently bound today, right? They're presently bound, right? This is not a concept that should be foreign to you and me this morning as believers because we know that demonic forces do exist in the world today. We are told in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 that we do not wrestle today against flesh in blood, against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So demonic activity exists even for, for us today. We know that it exists. The demonic realm is indeed real. But for now, the demonic realm is bound up and they cannot harm 
mankind today physically. When the day of the great tribulation comes, that demonic realm will be released and there will be physical harm done to mankind at that time. Right? Today, demons mess with us. They try to stumble us. They try to take our minds off of the Lord our God. Okay? They distract us from fellowshipping around the Word of God. They distract us from prayer. They distract us from being in the Word of God. For those that are not born again, they torment them even farther and they lead people into things like drugs and alcohol and suicide. They make the religious person feel comfortable in their religion and they keep the truth of the gospel from going out to people. Demonic activity exists today and it is all around us. And this is what we wrestle with. This is what we struggle with, not flesh and blood, but this demonic power. But this demonic power is bound up right now to where they can't harm mankind physically like they will in the great tribulation, right? But again, demonic activity, we know in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says that the God of this age blinds the minds of people who do not believe the gospel, right? So that the glorious light of the gospel will not shine upon them, right? That's the God of this age that's behind that. That's the little G, God of this age, Satan and his forces. So demons are evil angels, if you will. They're indeed active today, but again, they can do no physical harm to mankind. But in the future, this great tribulation, they will be released so they can do physical harm. And in this case here, they will kill a third of mankind. Then verse 16 continues, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Wow, so four angels being released, but they have accompanying them 200 million horsemen. More than once here in the book of Revelation, we have seen the symbolism of horses being sent out with riders on their back. But we've never seen this many riders. And John confirms that there are 200 million of them. Let's read verses 17 through 19. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. But these three plagues, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads and with them they do harm. Now, there are all kinds of hypotheses about these horses, these riders, and the results that they will produce. And I've studied it. I've studied all the the, the different, not all, but I've studied different commentaries about this. And that's why you just heard me say a minute ago about the great river Euphrates and their location there. I have no problem saying, I don't know. Because I think if a lot of people were honest, they would just step up and say, I don't know. 
But there are a lot of things written, and, and again, I call it a hypothesis because that's all it really is. A hypothesis is an educated guess, right? I don't think that anyone can get exact, right? Any more exact than an educated guess on some of these things that we study here, right? I personally do not believe that something natural is being described here in these verses. Remember, these are, I believe this is something supernatural, something spiritual, because remember, these are angels that have been released that are, are bringing with them all of this destruction on human life. They've been bound up for years. We can't see them now, right? So I believe this is something supernatural here, but you can study that on your own and come to your own conclusions and read the different commentaries and, and go with whatever direction you feel led. But many try to equate this with a nation on the earth that will have an army of 200 million people right? Is this possible one day? Yeah, sure. It could be, right? At one time, China claimed to have a, a 200 million man army, but those claims were refuted and, you know, proved to be false. But can this be the case? Sure, this can be the case. But as I read these verses, I'm content with really taking them at face value. And face value to me here is that something supernatural is taking place and death is coming to a third of mankind, the third of mankind that will be left on the earth during this great tribulation. Okay? Again, I'm not much for regurgitated Bible teachings. You know, uh, you can be around church for a while, you can be around the word of God for a while and you can hear the same teaching about the same thing over and over and over again. I tend to try and take a fresh look at the Bible when I sit down and study it. Not that I'm trying to come up with a new revelation. I'm not trying to start a new religion. I believe it's all right here in the Bible. But I'm not much for just going to the uh, commentary and saying, oh, this is what he says. Let me put that on my notes and I'll read that to you. You know, I, I take a different approach to it. I don't try and reinvent the wheel either, though. But I just like to to read the Word of God, sit down, prepare these studies in a way that the Spirit leads me to. And, and when, I, when I tell you all this, why am I telling you all this? Because I believe you're to do the same exact thing. I believe that each one of us individually is to seek the Lord through the Word of God. So I don't want to present myself in front of anybody in a, as a way of saying, this is a fact and this is what I know and this is what you need to, to know from me and you need to listen to what I say and just do it. No, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to know the Word of God for yourself and study it. So again, I don't have a problem standing up here and saying, I don't know why they're bound at the River Euphrates right now. I don't know, right? I'm just a man. A man. I don't claim to be right about everything I teach. And that's why I always, again, exhort you to study the Word of God for yourself. So, so what does the red and the blue and the yellow breastplates represent here on these riders? What are these plagues exactly? All kinds of different thoughts on all of that as well. But what I'm content with is just knowing the plain facts of these verses here. And the plain facts to me are that this is something demonic that will be released upon the earth and the result of it that will be that many people will die. Why did the Lord give us this word? Why did the Lord give us the book of Revelation? He gave it to John because he wanted us to know it. 
He wanted the church to know it. And he told John, write this in a book and give it to the churches. And that's what John did. And now all these years later, we have it still. And God wants us to know these things. And it's there for you to dig as deep as you want to dig into it. Okay? And the, it, it, the horses, you know, we've got, uh, what we do know, right, is that something freaky's happening here. Something strange is happening here. The horses being described are the ones doing the harm, not the riders. If you read that there, it's the horses that are doing the harm, not the riders. So the riders seem to be in control of the horses. The mouths and the tails of the horses have the power to do the harm. The fire, the smoke, and the brimstone comes up out of their mouth, and their scorpion-like tails have heads, serpents with them that they do harm to mankind. Many people speculate and say this is some type of war machine. This is some type of future plane that has this power and John is just describing it the best that he can and it can shoot and it can do all of these things, right? Who knows? Who knows? But this stuff isn't foreign even to history. When I think of the smoke and the brimstone and all of that, I think of Genesis and I think of, of Sodom and Gomorrah and I think of the, their day of judgment and I think of, of Lot coming out of there and why was Sodom and Gomorrah being judged for the sin and for the way they were living and and we can't help but look at even in our own country the way our country is going in the same sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and people are beginning to say you need to accept this sin and we need to accept these people and accept them for what they're doing and all that but judgment is coming judgment came for Sodom and Gomorrah and there was smoke and there was fire, and there was brimstone. And here in Revelation, we're seeing at the end of the age, this smoke, this fire, this brimstone, the bottomless pit. You know, Satan and his demons have been released. All of this stuff is going on. So again, if you want to equate this with some future weapon of mass destruction, that's cool too. I'm just satisfied with the simplicity of just knowing that this is a horrific time. And I don't want to be here. And we need to warn people that this day is coming. And the only way to escape, like we talked about last week, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer and the only answer. There is no other God. There is no other way to salvation. And that's what we're to know here, that this horrible time is coming. And we, we need to share the gospel and let people know that it's coming. So a third of mankind is killed here. And then verse 20 says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Wow, you can look at this and say, wow, some people just never learn, do they? Even after these terrible events that we're reading about here, mankind doesn't repent. But this should come as no surprise to us, right? After all, the great flood of Noah's time, after that, people went right back to sin, didn't they? Even today, we have repeat offenders, that break laws and they go to jail and they get out of jail and they go back to jail, right? People sin. People love darkness, Jesus said, rather than light, so they don't come to the light, right? 
And, and even today we have the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, and it tells mankind what sin is and what to avoid. And mankind continues to sin day after day. And the only cure for sin is repentance. And people just don't want to do that. We see there in verse 20, demon worship. And you may say, I don't worship demons. I don't know anyone that does worship demons. But again, remember, there are spiritual forces of wickedness at work all around us controlling many things in our world today. And if a person doesn't come out of this world and be not of this world, then that person is indeed, in a sense, worshiping demons, the demons of this world, because they're not living in the way of the light of the word of God. We also see there in verse 20 that people worship idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. Well, think about those things. Gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. Sounds like money, finances, trinkets, knickknacks, right? What are our houses made out of? Stone and wood, right? These are things that mankind today loves to worship. You know, we go into debt today for these things and they have control over us in many ways. And we must remember that our God is a jealous God. As a matter of fact, let's close this morning by going back to the book of Exodus Exodus chapter 5. So again, John is describing something here of this great horrific time that happens at the end in this tribulation period. And man sees all of these things taking place all around them and they don't repent. They go right back to it. But it's kind of hard for me to point the fingers at those people that are there at the end times when today, in our own lives, we see people going back to sin time and time again and not fully committing to the Lord. But our God is a jealous God. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Am I in the wrong spot? Uh, I thought I was in chapter 5. <laughs> chapter 20, I'm sorry. Verse 1. See that? Can't trust me. Chapter, uh, chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all of these words saying, we all there? Okay. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. So pause right there. God had brought the Jews out of Egypt, right? He took them out of the bondage that they were under. For you and me today as Gentile believers, this world is a type of Egypt, okay? This world has us under the bondage of sin or had us under the bondage of sin, didn't it? But by the precious blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, we have been made free from the bondage of sin. And God wants us to worship only Him. 
He doesn't want us to worship our houses, our cars, our money, our jobs, right? We are to be living a very simplistic life of worship, realizing that this is not our home. We're not here to gather things. We're here to pass through. We're just passing through. Our time is short. It's not all about this life here, right? Again, we're just to live very simplistic lives of worship. Simplistic in the fact that we don't work for more and more things. We simplify our lives. The more things you have, the more bondage you have. The more stress you have on your life. The larger your house payment, the larger your car payment, the larger your credit card balance, the deeper your bondage will be, okay? And God wants us to be focused on him. And he wants our priorities to to be on him. Verse four says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, of course, we know that none of us here bow down and worship to our cars, our jobs, our houses and such. But if we're not careful, these things can control us and can become idols to us. But the bottom line here in verse six is that we should love God and keep his commandments. This should be our top priority. Who did, in Je- who did Jesus tell in Revelation chapter 3 that they would overcome, that they would not go through the great tribulation? It was those that keep his commandments. We can go all the way back to the Old Testament and we can see that that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to live in accordance with his word, live a life of simplicity serving him, keeping him as our number one focus, our priority. Jesus said in Matthew, right, to seek first the kingdom of God, that is to be our priority. God knows we have need of things and he adds those things to us, but he is to be our number one priority, right? So this is a difficult task for most of mankind because again, they don't want to repent of living for the things of this world. But it, ha- it shouldn't be a difficult task, though, for those that have repented of the world and have determined to live for God. So at the end of Revelation chapter 9 there, we saw that mankind doesn't repent even after all of these tragic, horrific events that took place. But I have to ask the question, what about you and me today? How are we living Are we consumed by this world? Are we in some form of bondage to the system of this world? Or are we repented of the way of this world? And are we fully committed to God? Is he our number one focus? You see, the day of judgment is in the future and it is coming. And there will be people left behind and we don't want to be left behind, right? Right? And being left behind will be the outcome for people that do not live in accordance with the commandments of the Lord, who do not keep the commandments of the Lord. So this is the first Sunday of the new year. We start a new year. We have the opportunity. You know, 
the calendars really shouldn't mean all that much to us, but it is the opportunity to reset. It is the opportunity to refocus, to start again. And I encourage you this morning to make every Sunday, this is the first Sunday of the year, but I encourage you to make every Sunday a day that belongs to the Lord, a day of fellowship, a day where you gather around other believers and you make that your top priority, seeking the Lord in 2015. And make the Word of God your focus, that we may know Him, that we may grow in a knowledge of Him. See, we can't keep His commandments if we don't know His commandments. We can't live within His will if we don't know His will. We can't know His commandments, we can't know His will without knowing His Word. So study the Word of God. Grow in the knowledge of Him. Examine your heart and say, where am I? I'm not, I'm not bringing you a hellfire and brimstone message to say, you're going to be left behind. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to exhort you and encourage you to take your faith deeper and to make priority to be the Lord, the Word of the Lord, fellowship, breaking bread, being around other believers, Okay, because that's what the early church did. They were our example. Acts 2.42, right? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. We have the apostles' doctrine even today in our Bibles. Breaking of bread and in prayers, right? This was their priority. This was their focus. Nothing's changed. We're still living in the same church age. Nothing should have changed from the early church. We should still be living this exact way that we see in the Bible. So, how am I tying this with Revelation? Well, we see this horrific time coming upon the earth for the people that will be here during that time. But we're not supposed to be that people. We're to be the caught up people. We're to be the people that are taken out of here. And our focus is not on this world. Our focus is on heaven. Let's pray. Father God, again, thank you, Lord, for your word, Lord. For your word is perfect, Lord. We are not. We mess up and we fall short in so many ways, Lord. Lord, again, as I prayed earlier, apart from you, we can do nothing, Lord. And I just pray for each and every one of us here, Lord. And I can't see the hearts of anybody here, Lord. And I can't speak for anybody's heart. But I just offered this prayer up to you on behalf of all of us, Lord, that we would all grow in the knowledge of you each and every day of this new year, 2015, Lord. Lord, many people make many resolutions and many commitments at the beginning of the year. We see fitness gyms fill up for the first couple weeks of the year, and we see them slack and empty down after that, Lord. But, but Lord, I pray that we would make a commitment today in our hearts, Lord, a commitment within, Lord, to give our lives more holy to you. Lord, that we would live a simplistic life, Lord, that we would not be in bondage to the things of this world, financial debt and the things that can enslave us, Lord. But that we would seek your face, that we would seek to live more for your glory with each and every passing day. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for those that I've been blessed with here, Lord this year to fellowship with in 2014. Lord, I pray your will to be done in all of our lives as we move forward. We just thank you and praise you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.